Welcome back to this podcast series of Behind the Screens, hosted by me, Alex Farlow, Associate Director, Multi-Asset Research here at Square Mile Investment Consulting and Research. In this series of podcasts, we meet members of the investment teams from across the asset management industry of funds we rate and spend about 15 or 20 minutes chatting to them and getting some insights into their current thinking. This week, our guest is Duncan McGuinness, Investment Director and Portfolio Manager of the Ruffer Diversified Return Fund. The fund seeks to achieve positive returns in all market conditions over any 12-month period after all costs and charges have been taken. Underlying this objective is a fundamental philosophy of capital preservation. So, Duncan, a very warm welcome to this podcast. I think it's fair to say, um, and probably the leading question from me is, it's been quite a tough year for the fund um, following a good year um, last year, 2022, when the fund defended capital very well and made money for clients when pretty much all asset classes fell in value. So what's happened this year uh, and, and why? Yeah, it, it has been a tough year. So we're down we're down about 7 to 8% uh, year to date. Um, that is on the back of four good years, I would like to point out, but there is no no doubt we've, um, we've, we've earned this year. And I think that's um, down to a number of factors. Uh, we we probably came into the year too bearish, and we can come on to that. We're very worried about uh, recession risks and li- liquidation risks. Equities have so far been very willing to look through that. They've gone from pricing in, you know, con- the market was considering a recession at the start of the year, and since then it's gone from sort of recession to soft landing to no landing to perhaps re-acceleration today. So, um we were too pessimistic so far. Um, and then also on the growth side of the portfolio, um, we uh, probably didn't have enough in terms of equities, but also we, um, we we had an investment in commodities rather than equities as a way to capture you know, GDP growth being better than we than we might have thought, and that that just hasn't hasn't quite worked. Um, despite the fact that we've avoided recession and rates have gone up, and that should mean that value investing and commodities are in favour. Um, actually, it's been it's been all about the magnificent seven, hasn't it? Okay, so I guess in terms of the, the portfolio has always wanted to hold a, a blend of, of both growth assets. Um, and also defensive protective assets. So I guess in in simplistic terms. How is the portfolio structured in terms of building blocks? So we've got we've got three big building blocks in the portfolio uh, today. We have some long term inflation protection. So think things like um, US tips, long dated uh, UK index line gilts, some gold. We've got a segment filled with protective assets, what we call our unconventional protective toolkit. That's really been the big differentiator between us and many of the competitor uh, capital preservation or wealth preservation uh, funds over the last few years. And lastly, we have an allocation to growth assets. Now, that's pretty small at the moment. It's around 25% across uh, oil, copper, and and equities. And that's because we have this this high conviction that um, recession risk is, uh, there is recession risk and markets aren't, aren't priced for it. I guess, mate. Can can we can we sort of have a think about and 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 talk about maybe some of the some of the equity themes that are running for, through the portfolio, or is it a bit more idiosyncratic? Well, I th- I think the the equity weighting is is small at the moment. So so the themes there are um, are not uh, they're not particularly big positions overall. So 
So maybe energy, energy equities is probably one of the biggest themes. But if you look at themes in the portfolio, then I think either talking about um, the yen or talking about duration. Uh, so we, we've been buyers of bonds recently. It's probably two of the most, two of the biggest risk positions that we've got and also two, two very sort of relevant current ideas. So which one do you want to talk about? <laughs> let's, start with, let's start with the yen, shall we? Yeah, okay. Uh, so... Uh, um, so the, the the yen is what we viewed as part of our sort of protective assets. Um, we've got a fifteen percent cash position in the yen and another fifteen percent uh, contingent exposure via via call options. So why do we like the yen so much? It's the cheapest it's been in fifty years on a real effective exchange rate basis. Now, it's hard to value currencies, but just anecdotally, a hotel room in Tokyo is cheaper than it's been in the last 20 years. Or I saw, or, or sorry, it's the same price as it's been for, for uh, the last 20 years. Um, and I saw on LinkedIn the other day, someone was in, in Tokyo for a meeting and they went to Starbucks, they bought two coffees and two croissants and it cost them the equivalent of $8. Now, I was in New York in the summer and I can tell you that one coffee cost $8. So, the cheapness of the yen is sort of without question, but that doesn't really help you much. It tells you about value, but it doesn't tell you about timing. But in terms of the timing, we've got this great catalyst of the the end of yield curve control by the, the Bank of Japan. So the, the era of sort of extreme monetary policy divergence that we've had in the last couple of years, where the Bank of Japan is still easing and the rest of the world is tightening, is coming to an end. The Bank of Japan are ending uh, YCC, they're ending their easing, and they may even take steps towards tightening because right now, core inflation in Japan is higher than core inflation in the US. So why have the US got 5% rates and the Japan has negative rates? So is that interest rate differential closes should help boost the yen's value. Now, it has been a little bit of uh, a whimper rather than a bang, the end of YCC so far, um, but I think the process is sort of still still playing out. Lastly, the yen is an old friend of rougher. It's something we've used frequently in the past. It served us very well in the financial crisis, which was the last time we had a position this big. Uh, and that's because it's a safe haven currency that people panic into. So speculators use it because of its zero rates for um, funding their, their trades. And as they have to panic and close those trades out in a crisis, they're forced buyers of the yen, which causes it to move pretty dramatically. So in extremists in the financial crisis, the yen rose 48% against sterling. Um, now, we're not saying that's going to happen again, but it's down 18% versus sterling year to date. So a 20% rally in the yen from here would be just a blip in terms of the long-term uh, currency valuation. So that, that's that's pretty exciting when you've got potentially a big move like that in a very big allocation in the portfolio. Okay, well, that, that all sounds um, you know, pretty, pretty clear um, and the rationale for, for holding. So, should we move over to the, the bond side of the portfolio then? Yeah. Um, so in the last couple of months, um, in the last month or so, uh, the day that US rates touched 5%, the 10-year touched 5%, sort of the 30-year, we started being buyers uh, and we we bought 10% of the portfolio into US 10-year tips. And we've added a slightly smaller position in US 30-year nominal bonds. So all that sort of adds up to the, the overall rougher portfolio duration is just below seven now, which is a, a big change of view from us versus 2021 and 2022, where, as you know, we had a sort of net zero duration because we hedged out our interest rate risk. And I was doing presentations called things like Remind Me Why You Own Bonds or The Death of the 6040. 
And the reason that we've changed view is because there's just been this profound change in the yield level. Um, you're looking at real yields. Uh, they're now uh, two and a half in the US. That is a huge change from just three years ago, because three years ago at the yield, at the real yield low, which was negative 0.5, if you wanted to uh, teleport $1,000 of purchasing power 30 years into the future, you had to set aside $1,200. You had to over-provision. Whereas now that you've got significantly positive real yields again, to uh, to do that today, you only need to set aside $500, which is, which is great. You know, it's great news for savers. And it means that the, the held to maturity returns on bonds, be it the 10-year or the 30-year, look good again for the first time in 15 years. But what I love about it is that that's the worst case scenario. So you can buy those bonds today, locking in those returns and know that that is the worst thing that can happen. Our base case is that the economy and markets are fragile. They're too leveraged, too financialized to cope with 5% nominal rates and 2.5% real rates. And so we will enter a recession or a market crisis, and that will bring... Uh, rate cuts, it will possibly bring the return of QE, safe haven flight, pushing bond yields down. So if bond yields come back down by 2%, then you get a 20% return on the on the 10-year on the 10-year bond. So you've got this really nice sort of um heads I win, tails I don't lose too much payoff on bonds from this current point. And then without getting too far ahead of myself. Hopefully, you make that 20% return as we enter the recession or the crisis. You can sell the bonds, turn around and buy distressed risk assets, which would be nice. Okay, so a strong case for uh, longer duration assets. Okay, that, that, that's all pretty clear. So the, the big picture setting is, is done by an asset allocation um, group within the, the business, which I know that you're part of. Take us through, I guess, when, when, when you sit. Um, and, and you discuss markets. Take us through sort of a, a typical meeting and, and what that looks like. Yeah. So, um, well, there's a sort of cadence of internal meetings that are offered, but maybe the, the what you know through through the week. There's a Monday morning asset allocation committee. There's a Tuesday discussion amongst the the portfolio managers. You know, the research team meet on a Thursday and so on. But I think the asset allocation committee on a Monday morning is probably the important one. Jonathan Ruffer just still chairs that. The portfolio managers like myself are in that. The, the co-CIOs are in it. Um, that is, um, we're, we're fed information before that from the sort of risk teams, sort of portfolio analytics and that sort of stuff. Um, and in there, we we discuss the issues of the day, whether it's the the, the structural themes that are ongoing in the portfolio or whether it's more tactical uh, tactical developments. And that's where the core fund managers like myself. Um, Push back, challenge, and occasionally come up with good ideas <laughs> that, that, that make it that make it to make it to the individual portfolios. And one assumes, you know, um, amongst the the, the characters w- within that committee, you know, that there's strong voices there, and you know, there's not always agreement. Uh, there's definitely not always agreement. <laughs> so yeah, there's there's strong voices there. There's always a range of views on things. There'll always be people who are who are at the, the more bearish end of the spectrum or, or feeling more bullish for whatever reason. Um, but, you know, that's that's pretty helpful on the on the debate. And it's trying to, um, you know, consider all those views and then and then reach some sort of consensus. But um, we've also always been of the view that um, your decision making by committee can sometimes be quite dangerous. And that's why that's why we have the 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 co chief investment officers to be able to make that decision uh, if the group can't uh, can't decide uh, unanimously. 
And and in terms of if you had to say that, um, I guess one theme or or, or one area where there's probably the most uh, diverse set of views, you know, amongst the team on on, on any area, which one would you? Hmm. I think yeah. I think I think an interesting one at the moment would be would would be equity. So we're pretty we're we're pretty unanimous that uh, the equity risk premium. Is is very low when you look at the when you look at the global number, particularly when you look at the US number. So the the additional return that you get for buying US equities over Treasuries is basically zero. The S and P's on twenty times earnings, a five percent earnings yield. US Treasuries are trading about five percent. So you, we think US equities are are very unattractively valued and therefore vulnerable. There's probably more debate as to whether the rest of the world is attractive. So. My personal view would be that I think that the UK equities um, or or Japanese equities are are interesting. You know, I think that if you use that same equity risk premium logic in the UK, you've probably got a five percent gilt yield and closer to a ten percent earnings yield on the market. So you've got a five percent equity risk premium, which is pretty attractive relative to history. Japan equity risk premium calculations a bit silly because you've got zero rates still there. So I think that there's a lot of attractive stuff um, in in those two markets. The debate then comes down to, well, is it possible for the UK and Japanese market to perform well if we head into a global recession uh, and or if the US market declines? You definitely can uh, imagine a scenario where the US market declines and yet uh, despite the cheapness of those other markets, they also go with it, um, and so that that's probably been the shape of that debate. I suppose the flip side would be um, that uh, look at twenty twenty two, the UK market went up even as the rest of the world declined. So that's a sort of one example where I think there's a range of views internally. The other one that I've been sort of banging the drum on, very parochial to to me as manager of of Ruffer Investment Company, but it's uh, it's the investment trust space. You know, there I think it, it's very easy to make the case that there there is a risk premium that might be interesting. So, just this week, the the Association of Investment Companies re- released the latest data, which shows that investment trusts, on average, are trading at the widest discounts they have since the financial crisis. So, um. I think it is fair to say that for most asset classes, risk premiums are very compressed. We're very worried about about that and think markets could potentially have quite a bit of downside. But there's not uniformity around that. There are there are pockets of value. Okay. And so you've you've mentioned that you know you sit on the asset asset allocation committee, portfolio managers meet. This is a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because there is no typical day. But what does a typical day look like for you in terms of how much time you spend, sort of, you know, in the meetings, how much time thinking, how much time trading, etc.? Um, yeah, I mean, well, there is no typical day. Uh, all I know for sure is that with uh, three girls under the age of five, there just isn't enough time <laughs> in any in any day. So uh, for me, I, I work Mondays and Fridays uh, usually from home in, in Edinburgh. Tuesday to Thursday, I'm either in the London office or the Edinburgh office. Um, we have that sort of cadence of of internal meetings, um, which isn't quite isn't quite one a day, but but it's not far off that. I spend a lot of time uh, dialing into sort of external research provider calls, listening to podcasts. We've got a very large research budget as a firm, so there is more content and meetings than you could possibly attend in several lifetimes. 
I, I speak to other fund managers. I do company meetings. Um, I try to carve out parts of my my week for for reading research for sort of you quiet time. I'm sure my wife wouldn't like me referring to it as that. Um, but particularly, I think that that tends to be evenings, Friday afternoon, which is usually quite quiet, Sundays. Um, but I think my my secret weapon is, I think, the the five a.m. train to London. So that that is that is four four and a bit hours where. If you don't log into the train Wi-Fi, <laughs> you get you get to actually really sort of um, read read and think. Um, and by the time you get to London, you know everyone else is sort of just getting going, and you, you're you're a few hours ahead. Um, lastly, I think, um, but certainly not least, uh, I do a lot of communicating with shareholders. So I do quite a lot of shareholder meetings. I do some podcasts and stuff like this, which is usually quite fun. Um, and I think. That, that is hopefully useful to shareholders, but what it also does is it allows us as a firm to protect um, Henry and Neil, uh, the, the, the CIOs, um, so that they don't have to be as distracted as me in terms of meeting meeting lots of people. Thank you. I think that's a nice place to, uh, to, to leave it. Duncan, thank you very much um, for joining us today and sharing your thoughts and insights. And thank you to you, the listeners. If you'd like more information or like to discuss anything you've heard, please contact us either on our webpage, www.squaremileresearch.com or by emailing us at info at squaremileresearch.com. Thanks again. Thanks, Alex. This podcast is only aimed at professional advisors and regulated firms and should not be passed on to or relied upon by any other persons. It is not intended for retail investors who should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this podcast. Remembering past performance is not an indication of future performance. It is published by and remains the copyright of Square Mart Investment Consulting and Research. Square Mile makes no warranties or representations regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. This podcast represents the views and forecasts of Square Mile at the date of issue and may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. Nothing in this podcast shall be deemed to constitute a regulated activity or an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. And it is not a recommendation to buy or sell any funds or investments that are mentioned during this podcast. Thank you.